and technically when you reach that point it's almost as if you're reading a script at a concert there's very little of your own opinions that will that you will really reflect so you know america as a country they've got the best technology they've got the best people and they've got uh, they 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 really way ahead of the game in terms of technology and that's what's saving them and and as far as bankruptcy is concerned yes financially they they're not in the best of health but for as long as people are buying dollars for as long as people think that the us dollar is going to be the strongest currency america will always be king sad to say and they probably have the best army in the world which is what makes them really the most powerful well that's, mohammed that's america I'm going to add to you, yeah, because as a journalist, as a seasoned journalist, I do my homework. America mm-hmm. is, the Congress is run by APAC, the American-Israeli Press Affairs Committee. The Absolutely. Zionist lobby decides who is the yeah. next president of the United States of America. Go to Israel. They have all the technologies that you have on your apps, that's in your phone. the latest surveillance on you know you talk about spies cyber yeah. breaking cyber codes who does that Break, mohammed cyber, but you know yeah, mohammed no no i'm i'm i'm, 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 I'm yeah. adding to you you saying to be a politician yeah. you know but, what but, you become but just remember one thing with technology no no i'm not talking about I, i want to finish off here mohammed i'm talking about leadership okay, your leaders yes your leaders yeah. as you said i will uh, your, your opinion you have to change it look at what they did to imran khan if you start don't think like them or you don't think in the box like them and you start thinking out of the box you are out my man they'll dump you yeah, day and then and they'll put you away that, and that's exactly that that's the, politics but but as far as uh, imran khan is concerned i won't write him off uh, he's smart do you know do you know his qualifications he's, he, he was he studied in oxford imran uh, and i imran call, and i are what they call a i on talking terms uh, mohammed Imran and I. Is it very yeah. interesting? We will be very no, close. And what, I, what what you call a PPE degree? That's a major in philosophy, politics, and economics. And back in the days, I don't know if you remember a company called Anglo American in South Africa. Very well. Right. It was like the company. It was like the Apple of South Africa, technically, back in those days. Right. And if you wanted to be a director of Anglo American, the first thing they would have done. was seen if you have a ppe degree from oxford directors like kem santer all right i'm sure you've heard of kem santer the guy who used to go around giving speeches and so on kem santer mohammed i want to give you a story about kem santer at the durban right. uh, you know that at the durban club yeah yes your good friend yusuf did that he used to make mm. me take all the notes from kem santer as to meet who's who in durban <laughs> from our Absolutely. from from our brothers i knew everyone and i told yusuf yeah. this is not for me brother i am not made for mm. who's who i'm someone else in the zoo so go go ahead uh, mohammed uh, well well basically you know as far as as far as pakistan is concerned it's it's literally a tragedy you know uh, it's it's let me tell you again pakistan is not a poor country there are many business people there that will probably buy off south africa from their petty cash right but it is just that once again resources are diverted if i may say you know pakistan technically is stuck between uh, india between the middle east and uh, somehow geographically they in a very very good position 
right? And and that's why China is really running with Pakistan in a major way. If you take the Belt and Road Initiative, Pakistan is one of the major uh, countries that they you know want to run with, to you know to expand their Belt and Road Initiative, right? Uh, or what they had called originally the Silk Road, uh, and and you, the road that's that's the the so-called road, and the belt is the coastal belt where they want to link ports with China so that China can spread its influence even more. And and Imran Khan as a politician, I won't write him off as yet. I, I think wait till the next election. You know, the interesting thing with Pakistan is no politician or president has completed their full term of office. This is what I was told. So uh, what happened was normal. And I think I was just looking at uh, yesterday or today uh, on Al Jazeera that uh, Pakistan is now buying coal from Afghanistan because they're running out of electricity, which then comes back to your theory about water, electricity, and will include sanitation, right? So uh, I think let, let's wait for the next elections and let's see what happens to Imran Khan. Dil, dil. Uh, I wouldn't write him up so fast. Yeah, I say Dil Dil Imran Khan, a great captain indeed. I mean, look at what you've done for Pakistan. You know, uh, the tourism number one in the world. Of planting olive uh, plants, I mean, exports are record high and so forth. And here you know, we found on, on, on a personal level, if you look at Imran Khan, uh, you know, there, there's two sides. One is all his money he took and he built a cancer hospital for his late, in memory of his late mom. That was one, right? Uh, and secondly, and more interestingly, was if you take his 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 marriage. His first marriage, he could have so easily become a British aristocrat and a coconut, and he would have probably been knighted today, Sir Imran Khan. Right? He was the darling of the British society, absolute darling. And he had, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people would say, "Oh, leave South Africa. Things are bad. Things are getting worse." You know, go to one of these first world countries. Take a guy like Imran Khan, British education. Right, married a British person, right, who, who was quite wealthy, you know, or, or, or from a wealthy family, and all he had to do was toe the line, right, and he would have been a, a top British person today, but no, he, he, you know, something, something pulled him back to Pakistan. I mean, you, you know, you, 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 you got a five-star life in in the UK, and to give up all that to go back to Pakistan, supposedly back, it really takes a person and a personality to do that in life. That's that's my summary of Imran Khan. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, he, he didn't want the money. Even the judge that uh, was, uh, you know, mediating in the, in the divorce. And he says, yeah, there's it. You can take half the wealth. And he said, I want nothing. I don't want a cent. And that, that was Imran exactly. Khan. Exactly. Allahu Akbar. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you do uh, very... Yeah, you know, uh, that's why we look up to, and he, you know, he went for, for these, uh, he says, uh, three-quarter of the parliament now in India, I mean, in, in Pakistan, uh, he says, you're defying thieves. I mean, the the guys that have... Uh, you know, six, can six, I tell you, there, there was that, that famous, can I tell you, there was that one famous politician who who, 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 uh, who turned against him recently. I can't get the guy's name for some reason. But, you know, literally... And, 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 and I say there's so many such politicians, even in our own community, that preach religion, that uh, try to present this ultra-holy image, but are nothing more than a bunch of 
what can we say that 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 will sell their soul for 20 cents yeah you're talking Time about the 10 percenter they call him mr diesel yeah fazlul uh, rahman yeah he's uh, the, the, right that's the guy <laughs> yeah, that's right. the guy I mean, <laughs> you know for him i think you know <laughs> i he, even for 10 cents he'll sell you down the river and and believe you me that type of person you will even find in durban as a politician take it from me <laughs> yeah, it's sad indeed, uh, Mohammed. As we move on, I think uh, the issue of uh, Ukraine is a burning one, and uh, it is this uh, Ukraine issue, uh, you know, NATO issue that is causing a lot of problems around the world. The price of fuel, you, uh, we, you and I are paying uh, 30 rands a liter soon, 40 rands. One guy told me, don't be surprised if it goes to 100 rands a liter, the price of uh, food being shot up and so forth. And uh, look at the orchestration of how NATO plays up. And then we find our Turkey, uh, uh, Erdogan, uh, we find that he's, he's, he's part of the equation of NATO. He's like uh, the blue-eyed boy of NATO. Tell us, Mohammed, what's going on? What's yeah. happening in this? Uh, you, know, you know, Ukraine and uh, you, uh, Ukraine is like literally one of the poorest of the poorest countries in Europe. Right. And believe you me, NATO wants nothing to do with Ukraine prior to prior to this Russian invasion, right? Uh, you know, and, and then let, let's go back back a bit in Ukraine. Who, who is the current president of Ukraine? A comedian. Absolutely. A clown. Right. Now, the president of Russia is Putin. If you look at Putin's history, right, he was a KGB operative, right, trained by the best, climbed up the political ladder. Uh uh, Zelensky was actually financed by a businessman in, in, in Ukraine. And he was a clown who, who came famous. Almost like tomorrow, if, if someone tells us, uh, well, what's, what's this guy? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll get his name just now. Uh, our, our comedian, our South African comedian in America, what's his name? Uh, yeah, I know uh, the colored guy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Brilliant guy. Now, imagine if he becomes the president tomorrow. Right. That's exactly what happened in Ukraine. And and he got onto the platform of, no, we're going to join NATO. We're going to join NATO. And the question is, why isn't NATO sending any troops to fight uh, Russia? And and make no mistake, Putin is no fool. Huh? And, and, you know, uh, another thing, those of you that have the opportunity and the means Make a trip to Russia. Go and see Moscow, one of the most beautiful stations in the world. Their, their, their public transport, railways. I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever seen... Look, China is good, but I don't think I've seen anything more exquisite than, uh, than Moscow's uh, railway system. You know, just to give you an idea, their stations in Moscow are literally bunkers where you've got an escalator. Those escalators have like three to four hundred stairs. Do the maths. Three to four hundred stairs. You walk in those stations, all the lights are working. No litter. Right? That's how Moscow is run. Now compare that to a country like Ukraine, where I would imagine everything is falling apart. And then they decide to become part of NATO. Fine, you want to be part of NATO. Putin made it very clear. Do anything you want, but don't join NATO, right? I don't want, uh, he, you know, his, his argument was very simple. That, look, I'm not sitting on America's border. I'm not sitting on Germany's border, right? I don't want NATO in my backyard. Simple as that. 
But no, uh, Zelensky came on the platform that we're going to be part of NATO, we're going to be part of uh, probably the European Union, right? And the rest is history. And, and tragically, then, then came the sanctions part. And, and that's taken your food costs, your uh, fuel costs, you know, out of kilter. Uh, today, Biden, uh, you know, the interesting thing was President Biden didn't want to have anything to do with the Saudi president or prime minister. Uh, what's it? King. King Salman. Right? After MBA. the Khashoggi saga in Saudi Arabia, I'm not interested. And guess what? He's been begging to go and see uh, the Saudi king or to say, please give us more oil. We got a problem. Because in America, the, the oil price has hit the roof. In the UK, the oil price has hit the roof. And then the question is, you know, sometimes in politics, you've got to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Was, was Ukraine joining NATO really worth it? And, and also people tend to forget, but, you know, if you have any German product today, right? Think of a German product. You probably got 30 to 40% Russian energy. Was the Elvis of British journalism, by far the coolest and most handsome journalist uh, that I ever met. He's a fellow Scotsman, though he's been living and working in London for a very long time and has retired from the newspaper game where he made his name, amongst many other things, as a forensic investigator in print of the, how shall I put it, shortcomings of the Metropolitan Police and indeed of other police forces. He's gone on to become a very successful crime writer. I haven't seen him for some years and I'm very happy to do so now. His name is Duncan Campbell. Duncan, welcome to the show and I hope and I can see from the glow on your face you're doing well. Thanks for uh, joining us. The proximate reason uh, for inviting you this evening and thanks for accepting is that the Metropolitan Police, led by its effectively uh, Crime Commissioner, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, are now in special measures. That's quite serious, isn't it? It is very serious, and there are very good reasons why it is in this position. I, I, I like to ex try and explain what special measures means, because I think it's one of those expressions a bit like fit for purpose or institutionally corrupt that I think people are a little uncertain about. It basically means that things have gone from bad to worse there over the last few years and they are now in limbo to a certain extent in the Metropolitan Police. The previous commissioner, Cressida Dick, resigned in February and we're still, we're now in July, we're still not expected to get um, a new commissioner until um, next month at the earliest. They're down to the last two candidates uh, for the job. But it is a mess, and it's not just the Met. The Met gets all the attention because it's the, London, as you know, George, is where all the journalists are. But there are at least three other forces in the police in Britain under special measures, as they call it. And uh, so it is a, a problem that is affecting all of the police in this country. Now, uh, many uh, cynics uh, blame Cressida Dick. Uh, they say that she got the gig, 
not because she was the best police officer in London. Uh, she got it despite being in charge of the, uh, the murderous uh, killing of Jean-Charles de Menezes, the Brazilian electrician shot by mistake in the London underground. But actually, the men that came before her uh, weren't up to much either, were they? No, there's been a lot of bad leadership of the Metropolitan Police for many years. I often refer to, uh, I think, probably the, the most successful commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, who was Sir Robert Mark, who, if you remember, you're just old enough to remember, uh, George, uh, came in in, 1970, in the 1970s at a time when Scotland Yard particularly was fantastically corrupt. And he came in, he said his, his aim was to arrest more criminals than he employed. And uh, he got about 50 of his officers, detectives who were deeply corrupt, were prosecuted, another 300 left rather than face disciplinary procedures. And he made a real effort. He, he encouraged the police to talk to the press, uh, which is something we can maybe come on to later. Uh, which they hadn't been before. They were very, very reticent about talking to the police. And he kind of embodied what Sir Robert Peel, who founded the Metropolitan Police in 1829, he's often quoted, whether he actually said it or not, it doesn't really matter, but it's attributed to him, which is that the police are the public and the public are the police. In a way, you get the kind of police force that you deserve. But I think feeling has been over the last few years that we don't deserve some of the things that have happened, the most obvious being this horrible murder by a serving police officer, Wayne Cousins, of Sarah Everard, problems that arose in demonstrations following that, but also some very, very badly bungled murder investigations and bungled uh, sex offence investigations in which completely innocent people were named and investigated and, and so on. So it's been a long time coming. Um, and, but things are very serious now, and there are a lot of reasons. And I, I think my argument about it is that, um, yes, the Met is in a mess, but there are a number of reasons for it, and the government is very happy to let the Met take the heat for a lot of the mistakes that they've made. When Theresa May was Home Secretary and then Prime Minister, she cut the number of officers by more than 20,000. She cut the number of staff, uh, support staff, by 23,000. And also, half the, half the police stations in Britain have been closed over the last 10 years, more than 600 of them. And that, that's one way that the police establish a relationship with the public. There's a place, it's kind of like the death of the pub and the death of the church and the death of the post office in this country. That the government has been frantically selling off the family silver and they, they've got rid of half of the magistrates' courts in, in England and Wales, sold off, one round the corner from me here in, in uh, Bethnal Green, um, is now a, 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 an extremely expensive hotel. You can stay there for 300 quid a night. It used to be a magistrates' court where I used to go and see naughty people being tipped off by a magistrate. So the government have, have not given the police the kind of backing they deserve, or the leadership, and there's, they have made a mess of the criminal justice system in this country. We could talk uh, all night about what you have just said. It was uh, a, a tour de horizon uh, 
without peer, actually, identified just about every single issue uh, that has arisen, not just in Cressida Dick's time, but going back uh, decades. Uh, let's, let's take just one of them. Uh, I, I passed a very she-she uh, cafe, uh, which is called the old police box. Yeah. I'm so old, I remember, no, never mind police stations, but police boxes. So there was a station, but there was also a box. And there were pairs of police officers would walk around the housing estate, housing scheme uh, that I grew up on, uh, would be looking for uh, evidence of criminality, of course, but their very presence was intended to be deterrence uh, to uh, gangs, to people up to no good. And they would repair to their police box. You could go to the police box and talk to them. Many did. Uh, there was a phone in the police box at a time when hardly any of us had phones and you could just pick it up and you were through to the station. The station was local. People had a relationship to the police that they simply don't have now. So if Robert Peel was right and that the public are the police and the police are the public, that, uh, that is well and truly severed now, isn't it? It is. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of expecting, because you know where I live, uh, which is very near Hackney Road in, in East London, uh, I'm sort of anticipating that this, you will hear a sound of the police at some stage with a siren going past. And that is most people's experience is a blue flashing light and a siren. Uh, I can't think the last time I actually saw one in uniform wandering around. They used to go, they used to be mocked, Bobby's in bicycles two by two and so on like that. And, you know, although it, this is created as a sort of magical time, you have to remember at that particular time in the 60s and 70s, they were fantastically, the, the detective branch were fantastically corrupt. One former commissioner who I knew remained in uniform uh, all his career. And he said that, that it was so difficult to be a detective without having on your first job, somebody tucking some pound notes in your top pocket from a raid or from a bribe or whatever. Uh, so while the police were on the street and, and people felt secure, that was going on in the background. But now we have a situation, there is not that um, institutional corruption within the detectives anymore. The detectives were, are now uh, subject to much stricter controls than they ever were when I, when I first started writing about them in, in, the, in the 70s. But what has happened is that the police have been completely detached and as I mentioned earlier, the closure of all these police stations, like the closure of banks and, and everything else we're talking about, detaches people from them. And so people, the only form of communication is by a phone or an email or Twitter or whatever. And, and that, you know, and I think whoever it becomes the new commissioner, that's one issue that they, they have to address. On, on the other hand, uh, I mean, just to put it in a tiny bit of context, I was looking this up before I came on. Uh, at least we we don't have a, a, a 
a trigger-happy police force. I was looking at the number of fatalities called, caused on civilians by the police in this country. For this year, it's uh, zero. In America, it's 497. Last year, in this country, it was one. In America, it was up 1,055 people shot dead by police officers. Uh, so we, we have to balance that, that at least we don't have, we have the least trigger-happy police in the world. But we now have an extremely embattled police, both the Metropolitan Police and others, and I, I do believe that they've been very badly let down by, and in other ways by the government, in that the police, particularly during COVID, were left with the, the business of clearing up all of other societies' errors. The, the poverty, uh, the homeless people, the police are meant to deal with them. The alcoholics, the drug addicts that you see on the street, particularly not far from here, uh, that's lumbered with the police. Instead of a government that is dealing with all of these problems, they're leaving it to them. And, and you see Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, occasionally dressing up in police uniforms. It's bizarre. It's like two two children at a fancy dress party going along if there's a big drugs raid or something like that, but doing nothing to address the fact that Britain has the largest number of, of people in prison per head of population of any other country in Western Europe. And that creates the problems for the police. They come out, they have nowhere to go, and, and you have our, our prisons, many of them privatised, um, are kind of the universities for crime. They're producing more and more criminals. There is none of that rehabilitated stuff, which you will remember from the special unit in Barlini that produced great artists and people. None of that is going on. The prisons are so full of, of, of oh, so overcrowded that none of the education, none of the training for work that should go on. And, the, and it's the police uh, that are left to deal with those problems when they come out of prison. Very well said. Now, you moved on from reporting on all these things uh, to fictionalize them. And a very fine crime writer you turned out to be. When you watch uh, these uh, crime series on television, you know, Line of Duty and so on, how... Yes, sir, we'll leave it at that. And, uh, yeah, looking at it, they had taken special uh, measures uh, long before 50 uh, officers were dismissed for corruption and uh, last 10 years, over 500 police stations in the UK were closed. Churches were sold. A, you know, um, um, a, a, it's a definitely a mess of, a, of uh, the criminal justice system there in that part of the world. And hey, same. We look at our part here, what's going on there. And also, you know, yesteryear they spoke about the police box. It was like a security guard, you know, in every suburb, every town. They patrolled and looked out for unsavory elements and all that people were safe. And you came to that box, you could hit a direct call to the police station. And, uh, you know, police are uh, detached from the public now. You notice they don't have the same uh, rapport. They don't have the same trust uh, with each other. And also, when you're looking at this, uh, these statistics in America, yeah, imagine, in America alone, 1,045 people were shot dead in America, whereas in uh, uh, they say in Britain it was only one, and also they say uh, Britain has the largest uh, the largest uh, prison population in Western Europe. Yeah, that's a uh, Britain for you people. Time for us to go for a break, and inshallah we will continue after that. Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. Empire.
Powering the Ummah. Yes, sir, we have a bonus edition for you. What's causing the global crisis uh, in the world today, uh, courtesy of Al Jazeera? Let's uh, listen uh, to Inside Story and we'll get a clearer picture. Inside Story in Amsterdam, Nils Malema, a policy advisor on climate justice for Action Aid in the Netherlands. And in the French city of Nice is Abdul Reza Abassian, a food market analyst and former senior economist at the Food and Agriculture Organization. A very warm welcome to you gentlemen uh, on this edition of Inside Story. Nils, can I just begin with you in Amsterdam? I mean, we see reports and press releases about food poverty and food hunger all the time. What's so different about this report coming out at this particular moment in time? I think the simple answer is that there's an increase that's just astronomical. We've seen that uh, countries haven't been able to recover from COVID and then conflicts have come along and we're also starting to see the genuine impacts of climate on the food systems. It's exposing just how vulnerable the, the global food systems are to uh, to these shocks to the system that we uh, simply aren't able to remedy with, with our current food system. Uh, Abdurreza Abbasian in Nice, I mean, what do you think can come out of this particular report and this, and this press conference for it? Because some eminent names are actually on the list uh, in terms of the presentations. You've got the Director General of the FAO, an organisation that you were connected with. Uh, we've got the President of IFAD, we've got UNICEF, the World Food Programme, the WHO. Um, it's a who's who really trying to uh, get the world to focus on the real problem. Well, it's very unfortunate, isn't it? Because it's been uh, many years that international organizations led by FAO and other organizations, particularly dealing with, uh, with food, but food systems are warning that we are not really doing what we're supposed to be doing to reduce hunger and malnutrition. And in fact, uh, one thing about this report, which makes it even more sad, is that the numbers, the statistics, refers to predates the, the war with Ukraine and all the problems that started this year. It really reflects back on the developments uh, in 2021 and before, and already we had failed. And in fact, prices of food, as you know, had been rising even before the war. So we are in a situation which I think uh, there is no other better term than to call it a crisis. And it's not just in the food sector, as our colleague just mentioned, on the climate side, political side. So really, we are in trouble. And I think uh, it, is, it is not, I mean, it, it's good that they all came together and uh, they're pledging again for, for a global effort. Uh, but honestly, um, something fundamental has to happen or else we are into a much, much deeper problems in the future. And of course, you've touched on one of those big issues of, is Ukraine. And Nils, let me come back to you. Of course, we can't blame everything on what's happened really in the recent sort of Russia war on Ukraine. Uh, but we were coming out of a pandemic. We saw the problems, you might say, within two years. But the last sort of 10 years has not been an easy time globally in terms of the way the climate has also impacted on all of this. That's Entirely correct. Um, we've seen that droughts have increased. We've seen extreme weather increases. We've seen uh, numerous forms of climate catastrophe happen across the globe, uh, mostly in the global south, mostly impacting women. Um, and as a result, what we've also seen is that local food uh, markets, local food uh, production has been just heavily, heavily hit. And when you bring in the Ukraine crisis, we've seen how 
the lack of grain, the way we use our produce, the fact that much of it is produced for biofuels, the fact that much of it is produced uh, purely for animal feed, that we're not, um, it, it's, it's just exposing the vulnerabilities of it. The fact that one war can break out in Eastern Europe and have ripple effects all across Africa, all across the global south, is simply shocking when we've also, for the last 10 years, been investing in development and other um other processes. However, the way we're doing that has made countries uh, like Kenya, countries in the Horn of Africa, extremely dependent on, uh, on, on the global north, which has just essentially meant that they aren't able to produce for their own markets. Local food prices in these countries have been on the rise for a long time because much of the fertile ground is being used to produce non-food agricultural products that are then being shipped out of the country um, and leaving very limited space for local food production. Indeed, I mean, you know, this is that's sort of the, the subject of right here and now. Uh, Abdul Reza, can I just talk about sort of one of the issues in the report that's been highlighted? And, and there seems to be this dramatic jump in figures after 2015. Um, and one wonders what the driving force was, because it says that uh, after remaining relatively unchanged in 2015, the proportion of people affected by hunger jumped in 2020 and continued to rise in 2021 to 9.8% of the world population compared to 8% in 2019 and 9.3% in 2020. Lots of figures here. But what was the driving force? What happened in 2015 that, that, that made it jump so quickly? Because we didn't have the Ukraine war going on and we didn't have a pandemic. You know, we had the, um, uh, a serious crisis uh, with, with food prices back in 2008 to 2012-13 period. Um, the, to some extent, at that at that time, uh, there were a lot of issues in a lot of countries and so forth. But we never really came out of that problem, and um, we probably contained it uh, through safety nets, through trade, um, and also agriculture, which responded to to the demand and production increases. But in effect, um, uh, the the famine, the hunger, and crisis, a lot of hotspots, geopolitical issues. We're all there. They really didn't disappear. And I think uh, what happened is that uh, after we, we kind of finished with the, uh, the, that crisis period, uh, we started and you start collecting statistics and numbers and you see, oh, wow, things are really terrible still. And in fact, one could say today we probably never recovered. And from 2015 onwards, we see uh, accumulation of hunger and uh, all the problems that we saw. There were uh, multiple crop failures in many parts of the world happening in also the last seven, eight years. And then you had, we have now almost three years of COVID. Uh, again, you would not have been able to see the implications of COVID exactly when it was happening. It's just afterwards that the statistics tells us what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew, we knew that it would be a disaster. We knew that many countries would not be able to cope with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, and the warnings were made. And today, we unfortunately realized that uh, the predictions were correct. And as it is now that, uh, you know, many, many analysts are, are warning about the future being much worse than was uh, assumed before, uh, simply because this war and all the uh, disruptions in trade. Uh, this is not something probably today, again, we, we get a feel of it because of the price uh, response and so forth, but it's more than prices. People's consumption is at stake. They, they cannot afford it. They will be eating less. They will be eating poorer food. And, and all of these things is going to come and hunt us back, perhaps in 
you know, in a year or two. Sure. It's not going, unfortunately, Let's, If I can just look at it in more detail then, with Nils, because, you know, we're talking about, again, uh, from this press release, 927 million people, 11.7% of the global population, face food insecurity at, at insecure levels. So we talk about the pandemic, we talk about people staying at home, we talk about production not being up to its maximum uh, potential. Are we now talking about scaling up production uh, to pre-pandemic levels? Because there is the problem, isn't it? The workforce, Nils, is not there. And add to that the problems with the climate. So we'll talk about climate in a moment, but let's talk about workforce because you need people to, to pick the food or to uh, collect it from the fields. And that's the big issue for many countries. I think for, for many countries, I'm, I'm sure that is one of the issues. But I think fundamentally, we when we look at the food system, we've made it heavily industrialized. We produce significantly more and use significantly more land than that we actually need to to be able to feed the world's population. It's the structure that we've built this on. It's the way we use food. It's the fact that we're using it for biofuels. It's the fact that we're wasting a great deal of this production, which and, and it's it's easy to fall into figures and markets and that kind of thing. I, I, I want to bring it back also to, to the humanitarian side of things where it, you see families that are able, that would theoretically be able to produce their own food, not able to because they don't have access to land. We see families now pulling kids out of schools to try to make make enough money to afford these uh, these new increased prices, which are just astronomical. So it's not as simple as saying we need to increase production to match this uh, to, to pre-pandemic levels. It's about readjusting the system in such a way that it is sustainable and that it actually works. Okay. Let me just bring in here uh, in Nairobi uh, another guest that is joining us on Inside Story. Uh, Maurice Oyango is the regional head of disaster risk management at Plan International. Uh, Mr. Oyango, good to have you with us from Nairobi. Uh, obviously, Africa is always a Africa is always a focal point when we start talking about food insecurity or uh, and the and the and the reasons for it, be it drought or conflict. How is the problem being exacerbated these last few years to the position that you see right now? Um, it has it has been it has really really uh, gotten worse um, uh, because what we are witnessing across uh, the continent is uh, uh, four consecutive failures in terms of rain. Uh, so we are, we are seeing a situation where uh, pastoral conditions cannot re rejuvenate very quickly. In the past, the drought cycles used to be uh, every ten years or so. But what we are witnessing increasingly is uh, drought uh, conditions of uh, every two years, sometimes even every every one year, and and all this is being exacerbated by um, uh, drivers like uh, uh, climate change. Uh, we are we are seeing cases even of food insecurity driven by conflict. So uh, it's really gotten worse in the in the last few years. You're very close to one of those conflict areas. We saw um, the issue of Tigray being uh, a, a high news story uh, these last 12 months uh, in Ethiopia. Um, we've seen in food insecurity in those areas and in that within within that part of the Horn of Africa. Uh, how much of a problem is conflict continuing to be? We see it in Somalia. We see it in Sudan, uh, issues in the Sahel region uh, are all contributing to people having to move, to migrate, to find food, and it's becoming more and more difficult for national sovereign governments 
to actually cater for that migration of people? Yeah, um, conflict is, uh, is, is a major driver, but uh, uh, we, we should not forget the, the fact that uh, uh, climate, uh, climate change is also a, a significant barrier. And this, all these are interlinked because um, in, uh, I'll give you the example in pastoralist conditions where the, pasture, the more pasture strains, the more rains becomes scarce, uh, conflicts around that also get, in, uh, get, get higher. So you, you, are, you are seeing a situation where people are, are, are fighting over scarce uh, pasture, scarce water conditions, because communities move from one area where there is no water into an area where they, they think there is more water. And that causes a lot of conflict in some of these communities because of scarcity uh, in, in, in those areas. And uh, that tells you that uh, it's not just conflict. The driver is something bigger. The driver is is, is climate induced. Uh, is, is climate induced? The drivers are, are, are things to do with climate change. So it's something bigger. And we can focus on that now uh, with Abdul Reza uh, in Nice, because in recent weeks we've seen eastern India and northern Bangladesh. Um, have a deluge of rain, the environment is being blamed or climate change is being blamed. But it actually uh, is an example of how quickly people's lives change within a matter of days and how it lasts. As we're still seeing now, there are areas flooded, paddy fields uh, inundated, and it's going to take years, decades to get that into a, a recoverable position. Yeah, and you see, the, the issue is that climate change and all these erratic weather situations that we are facing is a serious problem. And, and we know that. It's evident, and I think it's not strange for anybody. But one thing that we must also concentrate and, and think about is it's not all about food supply. It's about livelihood and it's about, you know, people's being able to actually purchase food. Uh, and that is the other problem that we haven't been able to resolve. Uh, people's purchasing power is diminishing. And in fact, one of the drivers, going back to your earlier question, why hunger was rising from 2015, wasn't so much that food wasn't available or supplies were, were trimmed. They were not. And in fact, even today, production has reached pre-COVID level for some of the major cereals. It probably on, on a per capita level, because population also increases, you would have expected, let's say, perhaps produce more or, as our colleague just mentioned, use less for industrial use like ethanol or animal feed and divert it to food. Yeah, all of those things are possibility. But honestly, that is not the big problem today and perhaps in the next few years. The big problem is people cannot afford it. Even at the lower prices that they are now, they wouldn't be able to afford it, let alone what prices we have today, which is 30, 40 percent at the international level higher and probably at local level, something like twice as high as last year. So if they couldn't afford to buy the food last year at those prices, how would we expect them to buy it this year or next year at current prices? This is a lot to do also with purchasing power as it does with supply. So, Nils, let me bring you in here because purchasing power is a really big issue across Europe at the moment and, and, and for many uh, uh, people's purses and wallets as they go to the supermarket because obviously you know various food is manufactured and it ends up in a supermarket or not we're seeing a rise in food banks in places like the united kingdom uh, across the u.s across you might say developed urban western um countries uh, so you have the food crisis obviously in in places like africa and south asia where it's produced in the fields, sold at local markets and then you have in the other extreme you might say in the developed countries where it's just not available on the supermarket shelf and people are now resorting to food banks I think if you 
if we're very honest about this, we've seen inequality rise globally for the last decades. We've seen, uh, even in the middle of the COVID pandemic, when generally a great deal of people had their purchasing power hit enormously, their incomes disappear, their livelihoods disappear, um, and yet the super rich got even richer. And we honestly have a crisis on our hands in terms of distributing and redistributing those funds. We've in Europe and in, in the Netherlands uh, in particular, we've chosen to start taxing labor significantly more than we chat than we tax production or than we've taxed businesses or uh, when. So we need to reevaluate where and how we're distributing our wealth, um, which I think is fundamental to, to being able to access this food. At the same time, we know that by shifting over to agroecological practices, we know that by uh, including society into this food system, that reestablishing a relationship with nature, society and, and farmers, we can build a system. And we, we've seen that system work in certain places where we've worked with it as, as ActionAid. Um, it increases all of those things. Those things need to be included in that system. They can't be treated as separate uh, issues. Okay, and let me just bring in then uh, Maurice Uyanga then in Nairobi, because in the not too distant future, in a, in a few days' time, we're seeing the G20 gather in Indonesia. What sort of noises would you like to see from the, you might say, the, the, the leaders of the economic world in terms of trying to deal with the issues that you're facing on your continent? Yeah, th thank you very much. In fact, uh, several points here. Um, one, if I just take you back, we are seeing a significant erosion, especially in terms of girls going to school. As Plan International, we are seeing a lot of protection concerns for children. And one of the key messages that I can also mention here is investments in resilient livelihoods. Investments, because climate change is going to be with us for a long time. We need to invest in climate adaptation program. We need to support communities to, to ensure that they can have um, resilient livelihoods because the cycles of drought, as I've mentioned, the cycles of flooding, they are becoming more intense and more severe. So if we don't invest in this, uh, it, it's going to be really quite catastrophic. And just to, to on, on another point, as we are, as Plan International, we are seeing a lot of hunger across the, the African continent. We are seeing a lot of hunger uh, across, even in places like Haiti. We have just launched a red alert as an organization. So the people are dying as we are speaking. So there is also an important need in terms of humanitarian assistance now. Uh, Abdul Reza Abbasian in Nice, I, mean, I know that, Nils, you're agreeing with all of that, but obviously the, the, the decision makers will be in Indonesia. They will be talking in Bali. What, what would you like to hear them say? Because you've been at these sorts of meetings on the periphery. You know how they act. You know how they behave. You know what they're thinking. Uh, well, the thing is that, uh, you know, in my previous job as a secretary of the Agriculture Market Information System, which is the G20 initiative, uh, I really, really urging all the G20 members to sit around the table and have a real sincere discussion about food systems and leave politics out of it. This was the purpose of AMIS, market transparency and dialogue, policy dialogue. No other time than today, we need that dialogue to really be serious. And I think that uh, people, politicians, 
Russia is a member, EU is a member, they're all G20 countries. They really have to leave. The war is a terrible thing and there has to be a solution for it. But there is also the food issue. And the food issue, other colleagues mentioned, a lot of the discussions we had today is about long term. It's an investment in agriculture. That is absolutely true. But honestly, today we have an emergency. And this emergency, at least for today, for the next few weeks and, and months, is something that can be can be easily, easily sorted out as long as politicians agree to sit around the table and talk sincerely with one another about that issue and leave other things out of it. I really hope that AMIS and G20 in particular would be able to put this on his agenda and, and just try to achieve it. Because honestly, if they don't, this will discredit not only G20, but AMIS, which you know was for so long a, a, a pride of, of G20. So this is really, really important time. And I hope also that they make sure there are no export restrictions by any country, at least those are members of the G20, so that uh, you know we, we at least don't add to the already very difficult situations that the world is facing. Well, we shall see what happens certainly at the G20 in the days ahead. Uh, for the moment, I'm afraid we've ha- got to end it there for this edition of Insight. Yes, sir, there you have it, uh, giving us an inside story of uh, what's causing uh, the food uh, crisis or the global food crisis. Now, you know, it's good for us to listen to that on uh, Truthful Media, Wasail al Alam, Sadika, Truthful News. And the reason being, uh, after listening to that, uh, you can uh, analyze it, you can think about it. And uh, what are the media men saying? I mean, there's half truth in it, there's, you know, the entire truth is not being told and you watch the types of guests that comes in there there and if you listen to uh, the guy from holland and uh, yes uh, what was his name uh, nil molema and uh, then you listen to uh, abdul uh, reza uh, you know, uh, and he's a food marketing uh, market analyst well you get uh, as i said and then you hear the, the person from uh, kenya and he was uh, talking a lot about uh, global warming and, uh, you know, blaming it on, on global warming. But uh, let's uh, break the analysis up and, uh, you know, what they have spoken and what is happening and <coughs> what is uh, really causing the global food crisis. And we know as Muslims, uh, whatever we do, our litmus test is to bring everything in uh, into divine decree and to look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's eyes and the noble Quran where Allah says, Wallahu khayrul razikeen. And I, Allah, I am the best of providers. So all these disasters coming through and all these uh, uh, conflicts that you see in the world, man, you know, complicit because the environment reacts uh, to what insan does and the prices. We know it's a fact that the prices of food is manipulated. The production of food is manipulated when there's excess of food, when there's excess rice, when there's excess eggs and excess of anything. What do they do? Yes, they dump it in the ocean and they won't let uh, the poor people eat. They will deliberately target people and they won't let them eat. When last have you seen, when last have you seen Europe? Hey, We've looked at Africa over years and years from Ethiopia to Somalia and name the countries, Kenya now and all these different countries. We've seen children, we've seen adults, virtually skeletons alive. Yeah, that's Africa. And then you notice when uh, the Africa, when the bread basket of the world, when Africa 
was a bread basket of the world and still is. Uh, there are many other statistics uh, showing you that Africa has uh, so much of potential. But it was a bread basket of the world when it was controlled and patrolled by whom? The European conglomerates. When they had their farmers in place and when they controlled and patrolled Africa. Now they've got other sources. Yes, but what they do, they have these silos, they have these hoarding houses, these massive places where they start hoarding. For whom? For the rich and for those countries that are compliant to these uh, neocons who are, you know, duping us to believe there is global warming, there's this happening, but who causes the problem? You know, drought in Africa, as I said, the Ukrainian crisis. Who started the Ukrainian uh, crisis? When U.S. and Europe are complicit in, uh, you know, wheeling and dealing, the ripple effects of uh, Europe or NATO and its allies are felt all over the world. And uh, what was uh, really shocking recently was uh, there was wheat that was being transported out of Russia and out of uh, Ukraine, and the ship was going somewhere, I think, towards Africa, so to go and deliver the wheat. And guess who intercepted that ship? Take a guess, people. Yeah, Turkey. Turkey intercepted the ship and begs the question, ah, they would them. Yeah, they would them. And what are they doing? So we're looking at all these things and we need to be objective. 828 million people. Yes, Tobela, 828 million people went hungry in 2021. That's an indictment on who? It's an indictment on these world leaders. I mean, look at the amount of food that is wasted at restaurants are thrown into the bins. And as I said, the most uh, amount of food that is, uh, is dumped into the ocean, amount of food that, uh, you know what? You know what? Mankind is sinning against their own intelligence. And how can this be allowed? And, you know, divine decree is watching. There will come a time when all this will be Inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will put the issues right. Then you find, they say, yeah, in, the, in Indonesia, the leaders, the leaders of the economic world. Who are the leaders of this econ econ economic world? They are the part of the problem. The same economic world leaders. They are part of the problem. The control and pat patrol food prices, the control and uh, patrol the uh, petroleum prices and all prices and they decide who's going to have this and who's going to do that and they bring in the armaments, they bring in the war machinery, they bring in all that creating or destabilizing a smooth existence of insan. They are not letting mankind live in peace. They don't give people the peace of mind where they can, uh, they can contemplate on the reality and the rea reality there is uh, to contemplate on our Creator, uh, to contemplate and worship our Creator in a manner He should be uh, worshipped. They're taking you away, they're taking you away, and they're making you circularist. They're taking you away, and they're trying to take your Iman away, and there's all this man-made, and there's uh, evil-made, uh, you know, pandemics and so forth that is coming through. Now the food shortage, and you know, they have it all planned. All the strategy is there. You obey us, otherwise, you, are, you know what? You're going to starve, you're going to have this. But people, keep our iman, keep it strong, keep it focused 
and we in the house of Islam are very fortunate indeed that we live in a in a powerful deen and we have the reality the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we feel him five times a day nay we feel him every second of the day with our tilawah of the Quran with our zikrullah by giving out lillah zakat fitra by making our qurbani and so forth we are very fortunate indeed so whenever you listen to mainstream media read in between the lines and at the back of your mind you must know we're being force-fed propaganda force-fed with the uh, you know with the information which is sometimes big big misinformation while it was good being in your company this evening keep it locked on to marcus sahaba for beautiful programming and lots and lots of uh, education uh, coming through Ram, uh, thank you very much uh, tobela for brilliant engineering from the team and i till we meet you again we bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh